help support the Jiminy Cricket podcast and the Disney Chris website by becoming a Patreon subscriber. By joining our illustrious roster of supporters, you will receive exclusive rewards every month, including audio content, Disney video commentaries, and an exclusive Patreon subscribers-only podcast called Down the Rabbit Hole. Be sure to check out our new donation levels and special rewards at www.patreon.com slash DisneyChris. Jiminy Crickets! Jiminy Cricket is the name. I'm a happy-go-lucky fellow. Always getting in wrong for singing my song. A merry old soul am I. Jiminy Cricket is the name I'll be hanging around this evening I'll be tipping my hat and telling you that Jiminy Cricket is the name Howdy partners and welcome to episode number 126 of the Jiminy Crickets podcast How you doing Ruthie? I'm doing great Chris How are you? Fantabulous. And this is going to be a very special episode about an attraction which opened 60 years ago at Disneyland. The Mine Train Through Nature's Wonderland. One of the most uh, fondly remembered extinct attractions in Disney theme park history. But before we get to that, we have a very special announcement. Jiminy Crickets Podcast proudly endorses Concierge Vacation Planners, a Disney-authorized specialty vacation planning service. Concierge doesn't just book your trip, they walk you through the entire process, helping you plan out every detail, one-on-one, to make the very most out of your vacation while saving you both time and money. And the best part is, they charge nothing for their services. You will get the exact same pricing as if you booked your vacation directly through Disney. But in using Concierge expertise, you've got the added bonus of having your very own personal Disney Guru Planner by your side. Both Ruthie and I are also satisfied customers, and we just can't recommend them enough. Visit their website at www.concierge.com. That's www.concierz.com, as in mouse ears. So when you book your next Disney vacation, be it Walt Disney World, Disneyland, the Disney Cruise Line, or many of the other Disney destinations available worldwide, contact Concierge Vacation Planners, and be sure to tell them Disney Chris sent you. excitement you'll never forget. Why don't you take a mine train ride? Reckon you'll agree there's nothing like the Rainbow Caverns in the whole wide world. Aboard our little mine train, 
You'll head out through a natural arch bridge and into Rainbow Desert, a wasteland just chock full of thrilling surprises. Rattlers, a pesky coyote, and some of the strangest looking cactus you ever laid eyes on. If and you're lucky, you might get past the teetering rock. Then you'll plunge deep into the darkness of Rainbow Caverns for a sight that'll thrill you right down to your toes. Tons and tons of water, every color of the rainbow, pouring down from above on every side. Yes, sirree, partner. You'll be real glad you tore out that little old sea coupon for the Rainbow Caverns Mine Ride. So, when Frontierland first opened on July 17th, 1955, it had basically three sections. And a couple months ago, we talked all about one of those sections, known as the Rivers of America. If you go back a couple episodes, we did an entire podcast about the Rivers of America. And the other area would probably, I usually call it the Frontierland Promenade, which is the area where you first enter the land and there's a row of gift shops and the Golden Horseshoe and then the Shooting Arcade. And it's sort of like the main street of Frontierland. But then the uh, northwestern corner of the land is uh, what used to be known as the Painted Desert. And over the years, there have been a multitude of attractions that existed in this area. And uh, when it first opened, it was a very basic layout. There was uh, just basically dirt and weeds and a few plants. And it was sort of designed to look like the desert. And it was convenient because it's actually technically located in a desert. Because (laughs) Southern California, if it weren't for all the irrigation systems, is a desert. So it sort of worked out that uh, they didn't have to do much to turn it into a desert. So it was just a basic area. And there were three attractions. Well, sort of. Uh, There was a stagecoach attraction, which was... These were, you know, brand new, but they were designed to look like Old West stagecoaches. Pulled by a team of four horses. And uh, passengers could ride on the top or inside. And it looked like, you know, the old uh, Wells Fargo-style stagecoaches. And then there were a series of wagons, not just Conestoga wagons, but there were different styles of wagons. But I think there were two Conestoga wagons on one of them, and both of them on the canvas was written a little message. One of them said, Westward Ho, and another one said, California or Bust. And then there were these little open-air carriages that didn't have a covering on them. I think there was a yellow one and a blue one. So there were four of those, and I think there were two stagecoaches. So six horse-drawn vehicles. And then there was also a 
mule pack ride that you rode through the same area. And these were live mules that you actually just saddled up on and rode around the area. Very basic, very simple, and when that area first opened, they even had a little miniature horse corral right next to where all of these uh, vehicles went off and you could actually go look at the horses when they weren't being used and sort of like a little petting farm and that mm -hmm. got replaced in 1957 because that's where they put the Frontierland shooting arcade in that spot. Oh, okay. Right. So uh, that was it on opening day. There were a little traverses where you could go down in the water. The stagecoach went over a little water and splashed mm -hmm. about a little bit. And weeds, tumbleweeds, just very basic. You could see the Disneyland Railroad going by in the distance. That was it. It was really not heavily landscaped, and it was just very basic. So... One year later, Walt Disney decided to do something he loves to do, and that would be to plus it. So <laughs> they went back and redesigned the whole area. They added uh, sandstone-looking rock work, man-made, but it was designed to look nat like a natural sandstone, like, you know, out in the Arizona Colorado mm -hmm. deserts and uh, they added a bunch of cactus and they totally re-landscaped the entire area made it much more elaborate looking reworked all the pathways for the mule packs and for the stagecoaches and wagons and in addition they added a mine train attraction this was called the Rainbow Caverns Mine Train because they added a brand new grand finale to the attraction called the Rainbow Caverns, which was only the trains could see this part of the living desert. So mm -hmm. after you rode around the whole desert area, the last part was going through these caverns. So. We're going to take you basically on a ride-through of the entire thing a little bit later this episode. But I just wanted to give you a little bit of a background on where it all started. So I'm not going to go into too much detail on the Rainbow Caverns at this point. But just know that the train originated in this area in 1956. And so... Even though the attraction we're talking about technically opened in 1960, a good portion of it was there beginning in the summer of 1956. Mm -hmm. So, the other attractions all remained and it was just they added a train to the whole thing. So, the original version of the mine train was basically based on one Disney true-life adventure called The Living Desert, which had been released in 1953. And it won the Academy Award 
for best full-length documentary. And Ruthie, you did a bunch of research on Walt Disney's True Life Adventures. Why don't you tell us all a little bit about what they were and give us a brief history of all of that. So I hadn't really watched a lot of these. Um, just So I probably had when I was a kid because what these True Life Adventure films ended up being is a lot of uh, educational films that they would actually show in school. So I know I've seen clips from the, all of them at some point here or there, things like that, but I've never actually sat down and watched the film. So I felt like this is that's something that I wanted to do for this episode as research. This attraction, the 1960 version, which is the one that we're gonna eventually go through, um, you know, scene by scene, it actually is based on five different True Life Adventure films. So Beaver Valley, which came out in 1950, the Vanishing Prairie, which was from 1954, Bear Country from 1953, Olympic Elk from 1951, and then like Chris said already, The Living Desert from 1953. And I watched four out of five of these True Life Adventures because one of them is just not available, and that is Bear Country. And I'm not really sure why it's not available. I I looked on Disney Plus. Now, all of the others that I mentioned are on Disney Plus, but for some reason, Bear Country is not. And I also looked on YouTube and I could only see clips of it. I couldn't find the full film, so I'm not really sure why it's not available, but um, that was the only one that I haven't seen. But when you watch these, you definitely can get, you feel like the inspiration for this uh, attraction is from these films because. Not only is there the idea of these animals, but specific scenes from these true life adventures are played out and set up in the attraction, which again, we're gonna talk about in a little bit. But um, just to kind of give you a, a little bit of background on the true life adventures, it really starts back when Walt Disney and the animators were making Bambi, because one of the things that Walt did was he purchased a film footage of a fawn so that animators could play it whenever they needed to get inspiration for drawing these animated characters. And we did uh, do, I, I don't think we did it. Did we do a full episode on Bambi? No, we haven't. But we've talked about it. Yeah, we've talked about how much you hate that movie. <laughs> no, I don't hate it. <laughs> no, um, but I know we've, we've mentioned it in passing here or there that they also brought in live animals for the animators to watch and you know observe so that they could uh, create different scenes for that film. But beyond just, you know, they can only bring in live animals so many times. So the film footage that Walt purchased was able to be accessed by the animators at any time they needed it. So that was kind of um, an inspiration there for Walt. He, you know, watching that and and knowing that he's trying to create these animals in their natural habitat with their natural interactions with other animals and things like that. That was kind of the start of this idea that he had for these nature documentaries. And then um, he was at a travel lecture. I'm not exactly sure what year, but he encountered the Malots and um, their first names are Alfred and Elma Malott and they were doing a presentation at this uh, travel lecture and they were showing the footage that they had filmed that they shot in Alaska, which is where they lived. 
And he loved it so much that Walt basically hired them and um, sent them back to Alaska to film, uh, you know, animals in, in Alaska and their natural habitat, specifically seals. And the result of what they came up with was the documentary Seal Island, which is the first true life adventure. And um, he, he loved it so much. And, and he knew that these the scenes that they were getting, all they needed was a little bit of quote unquote Hollywood magic, which is where the editors would come in and look at the footage and cut it into some sort of a little story. And that's exactly what he did with these all of these documentaries. He took the footage that the Malots filmed of these animals, and then they had writers. Winston Hibbler is one of them who not only was a writer on all of these, but he also provided the narration and um, just made a little bit of a story with all of these animals living in the specific environments that they're in. Another big part of the success of these films was its use of music, and Disney sort of used the same techniques he had learned through animation to yeah. interwove music into the action of the animal scenes. And Disney really invented People don't give him credit for this. But yeah. he invented the true life, wildlife documentary. There would be no animal planet. There would be no um, Mutual of Omaha if it wasn't for Walt Disney breaking ground on this new form of filmmaking, which the Disney studio came up with, developed, and sort of uh, laid the the foundation for all future uh, documentary, wildlife documentary filmmaking that followed. Yeah. So these were really popular films. And so Seal Island came out in 1948. And then the Malots just continued to do other locales and different animal groups. So the next one that they did was Beaver Valley in 1950. And I mean, when you watch this, I, I think I had heard that they were there was a storyline, but I thought it was going to be a little bit more exaggerated than it was. And when I actually sat down and watched this film, it was very interesting because you're seeing these animals act in their natural habitat. None of this was set up at all. The Malats literally lived in these areas for years and, and collected footage of these animals for a long period of time. And, you know, they kind of put it in a storyline that makes sense. Like, so Beaver Valley kind of takes place over a, a year's period and through the season changes. And so you see how the animals act as different weather uh, situations arise and things like that. So I thought it was really interesting and really um, unique. Like, like, how did this not exist before these films were made it's kind of unusual that nobody nobody ever thought of doing that before but and i mean obviously since then it's been a become a huge uh level of entertainment for people people love watching these animals in different you know in their natural habitat and watching how they really act, interact with each other and things like that so you know it's really huge um and you know so i thought it was really interesting that how popular these were and that Walt Disney wanted to capitalize on these films by, you know, making the original attraction, the um, Rainbow Caverns Mine Train. 
and then how he eventually took those into and you know made it into a bigger attraction so uh the original mine train attraction only focused on one true life adventure the living desert and there were a few animals along the pathway along the train tracks but they were all stationary and very basic there were a few coyotes and uh, a few other small animals but it was very basic the main focus of the original attraction were on natural geysers and rocks and the plants and it wasn't really as much about the animals as it was about the landscaping and uh, the um, real precursor to the 1960 version of the attraction would have to be the Jungle Cruise because basically uh, Nature's Wonderland is the American version of the Jungle Cruise, which is sort of the exotic, faraway place attraction, and then Nature's Wonderland is basically the same concept, but it takes place in the American uh, West and, and natural yeah. settings. So the Jungle Cruise, uh, originally they were going to populate it with live animals, and I'm sure you've all heard this story before about how Walt was told that they're too unpredictable, they would go hide, they wouldn't be, you know, the public wouldn't see them when they passed by, so they decided to go with the idea of creating mechanical animals. And what really sort of led in the technology was uh, the film 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which had a giant squid, which was uh, really the first mechanical animal that the Disney studio ever created and using that same technology they developed the animals for the Jungle Cruise but these were very basic uh, robotic figures because they basically just performed one or two motions that were sort of done on a loop so there was just repetitive motions that happened over and over and over again on some sort of repeating loop. And it was just all mechanically operated. There was no sort of computer technology at all involved. And so they weren't referred to at that point as audio animatronics because audio animatronics use a completely different sort of technology and that's where the name comes from, which I'll explain in a minute when we get a little further. I keep sort of teasing you guys, saying, "Wait, we'll talk about that in a minute." So I, yeah. I don't want to get ahead of right, ahead right. of the story. I sort of want to keep everything in, in an or in you know in a chronological order. So another thing that sort of inspired the uh, attraction was, of course, Walt Disney's love of trains. So, on opening day, Disneyland had two attractions that involved trains already, which were, of course, the Disneyland Railroad and Casey Jr. Circus Train. And so this would become the third train in Disneyland. And for Walt, you could never have too many trains. Right. So he had no problem <laughs> adding this train. And the trains were 
little narrow gauged mining trains, which were the type of trains that you would see in a in a mine situation that were used to pull, you know, the coal or gold and silver or whatever was being mined. And the little uh, carts where the people would sit were the mm-hmm. cargo where they would pile up all of the, you know, the things they dug out of the mine. That was where the passengers sat. So yeah. these were pretty authentic to the way that those looked, but they were not run on steam. They were, uh, they, they had, they were battery operated with rechargeable batteries that were inside uh, the back part of the engine and uh, they had little bells and it was very authentic looking but very reliable because it didn't run on steam it ran on electricity the um, person responsible for the rainbow caverns section of the attraction was a animator named Claude Coates who began working at the Disney studio in the 1930s and he when Disneyland was being built was one of the main supervisors of the Fantasyland dark rides and he developed all these interesting techniques with glow-in-the-dark paint that was um, illuminated with a new thing that they had recently discovered called black lighting which when you use these special lights and uh, it, it sort of made special paints, special hues glow in the dark. And he used this for the Fantasyland Dark Rides when Disneyland first opened. And Walt Disney thought it might be interesting to try to do some sort of a, a cave with stalagmites and stalactites and ponds and waterfalls that glowed in the dark. So. He asked his Imagineers if it was possible to create different colors that flowed together and create a sort of a glow-in-the-dark rainbow effect. And basically everyone said, no, it's impossible. There's no way you can do that. It'll just all blend together and it'll be gray. And Claude Coates said, yeah, I think I can do that. So Walt Disney loved that about him. He was a can-do person. Yeah, Walt did not like hearing the word no. Yeah, so Claude Coates actually cleverly devised a way to do it. He was able to keep all the colors separated and came up with a whole system to to do that. It's very difficult to really get an idea of what, what it really looked like because it was something, especially with the technology back then, it was impossible to photograph and really get an idea of what it really looked like. It was something you really had to see with your own eyes to really appreciate how beautiful it was. There's some black and white footage that you'll see of it, but it really doesn't give give a really good idea of what it really looked like uh, in person. One thing that when they built Big Thunder Mountain, they included a small little scene at the beginning with some of the same types of ponds of water that glow in the dark, but from what I've heard, it's just sort of a taste of what the original looked like. It's not nearly as impressive as the original Rainbow Caverns. Another Imagineer involved was John Hench. Came up with a lot of the um, scenic elements for the attraction, did a lot of the concept art, came up with sort of the layout of the attraction. And uh, Bob Sewell, who worked in the WED model shop, 
supervised and planned a lot of the uh, layout and the installation of the different uh, scenic elements of the attraction. One thing that was part of the 1956 version was a shop that was next to the exit to the mine train, which was called Mineral Hall. And inside Mineral Hall, they sold uh, minerals, gems, rocks, all sorts of things that glowed in the dark. And you could buy the same types of black lights that were used to illuminate the uh, Rainbow Caverns. So it was sort of, you could take the Rainbow Caverns home with you because you could buy these glow-in-the-dark things and black lights to make them glow and take them home with you. So this was sort of a really popular gift shop right at the exit to the attraction. And uh, let's talk about sort of what you saw along the original attraction. And then we'll, we'll sort of go through it twice. We'll talk about what you saw in 1956 and then we'll start all over again and talk about what you saw in 1960 because they were really very different even though a lot of the things were the same it was also very different so you really have to, to really get a good idea you sort of have to understand how both of them were the same and both of them were different so at the entrance to the attraction was a row of miniature buildings that there was sort of a hill and as the buildings sort of went up the hill they got smaller and smaller and through forced perspective it looked like the buildings were further in the distance but they were just built smaller and smaller and it was this little they called it the little mining town of rainbow ridge and there were all the different types of little shops that you'd see in an old west town, like a barber shop, and a bar, like a saloon, and a hotel, and, you know, a blacksmith, and just all the different things you'd see in an old western community. So, this was the boarding area and the queue area for the mine train through Rainbow Caverns. And as you got into your train, uh, the live narration began because originally the narration was all given live by a narrator just like it was done on the Jungle Cruise. It was all live narration in the original version of the attraction. And the gentlemen, because it was only men that did this back then, they were really weird about women do this, men do that, back then. It was like, this is a woman ride, this is a man ride, it was weird. Storybook land was all women, and this was all men, it was just weird. But anyway, they were called the Order of the Red Handkerchief, because all of them wore red scarfs around their necks as part of their costume, and because they had to be a little bit more you know, they had to have a little bit of entertainment ability, a little bit of stage presence in order to do the delivery for the attraction. They were given a little bit more, just like the Jungle Cruise skippers today are sort of looked a little bit, you know, people look upon them a little bit with a little bit more esteem. 
than some of the others. It was the same thing with the crew that worked the, the mine train attraction. So they sort of became the order of the Red Handkerchief, all the people who worked on this attraction. And uh, they had an intercom so in the back, on the back of the train and the front. So either the engineer or the brakeman, because there were two people, two cast members on every train, either one could deliver the spiel. And sometimes they would do a back and forth, where they'd joke around with each other a little bit and sort of interact with each other. So the first thing you would do is you would go underneath a what they called the natural arch bridge which was where the pack mule attraction sort of crossed over the rainbow caverns so you went under the pack mules and into the um the painted desert now what you saw on the painted desert and i'm only going to go through it basically because we're going to do this all over again and i'll get it i'll do it in a more mm -hmm. detailed way second time you would see the cactus forest and in the cactus forest they had some unusual cactus that looked like people like they made them like one looked like it was hitchhiking and then there was uh, the seven dwarfs there were these seven little cactus that looked like the seven dwarfs just all sorts of fun cactus and then you see the different sandstone structures and you'd see the stage coaches and the conestoga wagons going by so there were no animals that you were just started seeing all the passing scenery and everything then as you went further back you came to the bubbling paint pots and these were um they looked sort of like craters and they were sort of painted to look like they were rainbow colored and inside the little craters were little pots of mud that were colored different colors and they bubbled and they called them the devil's paint pots because they were all different multicolored. And after you passed that, you went past Geyser Grotto where they had uh, several geysers that shot water off over and over again all day long and they were, one of them was they said it unpredictable so we call it old unfaithful because if you don't know at Yellowstone Park there's a famous geyser that goes off at a certain time like you can count it like clockwork it goes off every few hours on the hour and they call it old faithful because you can you know when it's going to go off. So this was called, as a spoof, it was called Old Unfaithful. Because you don't know when it's going to go off. And it really just went off over and over all, all the time. After you passed through that, you saw some little coyotes that didn't move. And then you went through the um, Rock Canyon, where they had balancing rocks that looked like they were going to fall on you. It was all mechanically operated. They had a rock that rolled around on top of another rock and it was all mechanical and all perfectly safe, but it looked like these rocks were tumbling and were going to fall on top of you. It sort of reminds me of the tottering columns in the submarine voyage where they just sort of totter around, but they're 
connected, mm -hmm. so they're not really going to go anywhere. And yeah. then after that, you went into the Rainbow Caverns and saw all the different colorful water features. And you came back out again into Rainbow Ridge and you got off the train. And the whole thing lasted, I think, about five minutes. It's about a five-minute trip. That was the original. That lasted until 1959. This is the frontier town of Rainbow Ridge. Folks can board a mine train here for a trip across the painted desert and through the caverns of Rainbow Mountain. Some prefer traveling by stagecoach or covered wagon. It seems that some of our hardier Disney party pioneers are hitting the trail on a mule train. Let's hop aboard this mine train and our brakeman will point out the sights. Keep a sharp lookout on the trails, folks. You might see some of your dude relatives from back east. This natural bridge was created by centuries of rain, wind, and sandstorms. Of course, Mr. Disney helped nature along a little. At the base of those distant buttes, old Maul Coyote has set up housekeeping. Keep your hands inside the cars, folks. This is cactus country. This one always tries to stick us for a ride. And those cactus critters over there are the seven dwarfs. Up ahead is Balancing Rocks. The slightest noise upsets things along here. Now he's done it. Oh well, we've got to face it. These rocks really rock and roll. Never mind your heads, protect your cameras. Now we're entering the famous Rainbow Caverns. These bright colored cascades would make a peacock jealous. You know, there's a legend that says these waters flow direct from a rainbow. So, in 1959, the attraction closed and the stagecoaches and wagons permanently closed and the whole footprint where those were located became part of an expansion of the original mine train. So the whole area that had used to been where the stagecoaches and, and wagons used uh, was overtaken by more train area. So the whole thing sort of got about one-third longer than the original had been. And uh, that opened in uh, 1960, May 28, 1960. And from what I've heard, Walt Disney, for the grand opening, 
they had a family picnic and they invited members of the press and they all had an outdoor picnic near the entrance to the attraction and after the picnic his three grandchildren and him did a little uh, ribbon cutting ceremony for the uh, Beaver Valley area and then they rode the inaugural train through nature's wonderland. So one thing that also sort of influenced the uh, Nature's Wonderland was in 1958 uh, they added a diorama along the Disneyland Railroad. It's called the Grand Canyon Diorama and they uh, used a, this was all built indoors and they they used a woven canvas which was the longest woven canvas in the world and on it was painted a backdrop of the Grand Canyon and the whole uh, scene uh, had actual animals that uh, were preserved through taxidermy. So these were real animals and also all of the trees and everything inside were real trees that had been preserved, had been coated with special treatments that they took like over a year to dry so mm -hmm. that they they, like all the plant life and everything is also real and from that part of the world. So this sort of the layout of it and how they staged it and everything was sort of getting them sort of prepared for the next big step, which was nature's wonderland. And that, by the way, that Grand Canyon diorama was based on uh, a Disney short from 1958, also called the Grand Canyon which was not a true life adventure, but it was more of like a little short subject set to the music of the Grand Canyon Suite. So, in 1960, uh, passengers began uh, traversing nature's wonderland, and in addition to the scenes we just mentioned, several new scenes and new features were added to the original. Uh, so, they expanded Rainbow Ridge and added a whole bunch of extra buildings and they also started incorporating what I like to call window chatter. So, coming out of several of the buildings were different scenes that played uh, through audio. They had a bar fight, you could hear the uh, anvil being pounded at the blacksmith. <laughs> They had a dentist's office where you could hear a patient screaming as he was <laughs> being drilled. And they had um, a church bell that would ring in the, and from the hotel. They had um, a snoring <laughs> person staying at the hotel. Actually, that snore was the same sound effect they used later for... Um, the um, entrance to Bear Country for oh, that's funny. Uh, for um, Rufus, the snoring bear, as you entered Bear mm -hmm. Country. So that's where that sound effect was first used, was at the Rainbow Ridge Hotel.
please. This won't hurt a bit. Ow! Oh! 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 Now that didn't hurt at all, did it? Didn't they have like a barbershop quartet too? From the barbershop, they had a, um, they recorded uh, several songs performed by the Dapper Dans, who had formed in 1959, and they were the barbershop group that performed live at Disneyland. They got them into a recording studio and recorded three or four songs, and they played them on a loop from the barbershop. I think one of them was uh, Beautiful Dreamer mm, and mm -hmm. um, Listen to the Mockingbird and a few other songs. You heard it coming out of the barbershop. I'm dreaming now of Hallie, sweet Hallie, sweet Hallie. I'm dreaming now 
valley. For the thought of her is one that never dies. She's sleeping in the valley, the valley, the valley. She's sleeping in the valley. And the mockingbird is singing where she lies. Listen to the mockingbird, listen to the mockingbird. The mockingbird is singing o'er her grave. Listen to the mockingbird, listen to the mockingbird. Still singing where the weeping willows wave. Listen to the mockingbird, listen to the mockingbird. The mockingbird is singing o'er her grave. Listen to the mockingbird, listen to the mockingbird. Still singing where the weeping willows wave. Listen to the mockingbird, listen to the mockingbird, the mockingbird is singing over, singing over. Listen to the mockingbird, listen to the mockingbird, still singing where the weeping willows wave. So yeah, there was a whole series of little scenes that played out. You could hear it all while you were waiting in line to ride. The, so they really upped the ante with the whole Rainbow Ridge for the 1960 version. And it was really the first really elaborate themed queue area for a Disney attraction. Mm -hmm. So basically the, the load and unload area, although they had added more buildings, was the same. The trains had been repainted yellow. Um, the original trains were dark green. The new trains were more of a, were bright yellow, a little more cheery looking. Yeah, and, uh, they kind of stood out more in the, the areas and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, mm -hmm. right. And when you first boarded the train, you went through a tunnel and you came out at what was called Beaver Valley, based on the, what Ruthie mentioned, the 1950 documentary short subject Beaver Valley. This was again the first time they were calling this technology audio animatronics because they used a new system that used audio impulses to cause the movement. So everything was recorded on magnetic tape and the magnetic impulses were what made the um, robotics move. That's why they're called audio for the magnetic impulses recorded on an audio magnetic tape. Audio animatronics. That's mm -hmm. where the name comes from. This is the first time they used that word, which Disney invented that word, to describe this technology. And it was really the first time it was really used was for this attraction. Although it was a very primitive basic use of it. It wasn't until a few years later with the Enchanted Tiki Room that it really was fully realized. But this was sort of the beginnings of what later became full-fledged audio animatronics. But they were using the term for this for the first time for Nature's Wonderland. Now I mention that because the first animatronic creatures you come upon were the beavers for Beaver Valley. Oh, <laughs> 
And they had beavers that were chomping at trees, and they moved around, and and uh, some of them floated in a little lake, and it, they moved around little sticks and everything. And it was a whole scene where they were building a little beaver dam. And you passed by that and saw all this going on. And then you came to another little spot where they had uh, prairie dogs poking out of little holes in the ground and making yipping sounds. That scene came directly from the Disney full-length documentary, which also won the Oscar, 1954's Vanishing Prairie. So again, unlike the original attraction, this version sort of incorporated all sorts of scenes from all sorts of different true-life adventures. So what was the next thing after we passed the Prairie Dogs, Ruthie? What did we come to next? So then you would kind of go through a tunnel and then on the other side of the tunnel, you would be going around what they called uh, Cascade Peak, which is this new mountain range. Well, it's really like one big mountain formation that they added right along the banks of the um, rivers of America. And this, the train track goes along the edge. So on your left, you have rivers of America and on your right, you have like these waterfalls. But what you're going to do first before you um, drive along the waterfalls is you're kind of going to go under the waterfall. And um, so it's kind of like a little bit of backside of water, but they don't call it that. But um, so you go under the waterfall and then it's on your right hand side, another waterfall. So it's big thunderfalls. And then as you keep going around this mountain, you encounter another falls, and it's called the Twin Sister Falls. Because there's two falls that are identical. Yeah, right next to each other. Yeah. And then as this basically takes you all the way around, and at the other end of the of Cascade Peak, you're going to go through another tunnel. And then at the other side of the tunnel, you are going to um, end up on a old trestle bridge, and this trestle bridge goes over water and that is where you go into bear country right now the uh big thunder is what they called the falls because they were really loud and thundering huge falls and they often called it a miniature niagara and mm -hmm. uh that's where the name of big thunder came from was they named it after this waterfall very impressive and it really didn't look man-made. It looked very real. And uh, that actually stayed around for many years after Big Thunder Mountain opened. So there, for a mm -hmm. time, there were two Big Thunder Mountains. There were Big Thunder Falls and Big Thunder Mountain simultaneous for mm. a period of time. So when you went through Bear Country, you passed a little owl, a hoot owl. They called him Hootie. 
and <laughs> audio animatronic. And there were actually, all told, over 200 animatronic animals in this mm -hmm. attraction. Yeah. One thing is, though, they were all trying, they, they were all very realistically depicted. There were no yeah. smiling elephants and... <laughs> there, there, there was there was no comedy. It was not yeah. a laugh a minute. And at this point, the Jungle Cruise really wasn't a laugh a minute thing either. It was they were trying to make it realistic. It wasn't for a couple more years where they tried to interject more humor into the Jungle Cruise. Right. And there was some thoughts about doing the same to this attraction, but it never happened. We'll talk about that when we talk about sort of what happened after the attraction was put in mention that but so as you went through bear country and this is not to be confused with what became the land where critter country now is located called bear country this was a countryside you know populated with bears that's why they called it bear country <laughs> based off of the uh, true life adventure film bear country Right, that's another reason why they called it Bear Country, because it was inspired by that uh, short. And again, another Oscar award-winning short. So what you would see when you passed over the trestle was this big lake. And in the lake, there was a bunch of bears fishing, and there were flying fish jumping around, and you could see them trying to grab at the fish. All, all of them moved and made grunting noises, and... There were some up on the shore scratching their backs on trees and just sort of moping around and doing the things that bears do. Very fun scene, very popular with the guests, very believable and realistic. And you can imagine being high up on that bridge, crossing over, looking down on the bears. It must have been very impressive and very dramatic. I don't think that's something they can quite capture on film, sort of like... Right. It must have been really neat being in the train and seeing all that as you passed by it from high up. lake that where that was located and is still in the park today and we'll talk about that in a minute too yeah i watched a little bit of a a special called disney family album and it had an interview with the malots and one of the things that she um that elma mentioned in this youtube video was that you know they took part in making the uh true life adventure bear country and when they showed some of the scenes to walt the things that he really liked from that um, feature was the bears scratching. And they had this whole sequence, it's like a couple minutes long of all these, the bears scratching, you know, all over nature, trying to, you know, find, scratching their backs on 
branches and a whole bunch of things all over the place. But that that's why this scene in this section of the attraction is definitely included in there because he Walt loved it so much. Right. And it was all set to funny music. One of the yeah. things they did in those true life adventures is they like to do these sequences set to music like in the living desert they had a square dance with, with scorpions scorpions <laughs> yeah. yeah like things like that they would do for fun and they would do this thing where they would kind of reverse the film to make it look like right. they were dancing you know right. back and forth back and forth and you know things like that they did that in all of them right and uh they revisited this idea again when they made the film The Jungle Book because there's a whole section of the bear necessities where the loo, the bear, is going around scratching himself on everywhere. Mm -hmm. So Walt Disney was really into the whole concept of a bear scratching. And in later years, they added a little uh, robotic bear along the rivers of America that you could see up on a hill as you passed by on the various watercraft that was scratching on a tree that was there for several years so an ongoing theme for Disney so after you got near the end of that bridge which was quite a long bridge on the shoreline you saw a pair of elk who were at battle and they were fighting for the women and this is a scene that played out in the the true life adventure, the Olympic elk. But mm -hmm. it also reminds me of a, a scene from Bambi, where um, Bambi fights Rongo for fate over Faleen. female deer standing around as the two cow elk were fighting it out and this was all done very cleverly very basic anime you know robotic animation but when you see film footage of it it just looks so clever how they figured out to do this and they're just sort of going back and forth and you know they're they're locked their horns are locked together and it's really clever how that was done yeah so that's basically what we just described right there is the whole addition to the attraction because everything else we're going to talk about now were things added to the existing footprint of the original portion of the attraction. So everything from the point where you left Rainbow Ridge up till you passed the Fighting Elk was all brand new stuff and an all new brand new part of the attraction. And then you went under that natural arch bridge that we talked about before. It's still there. And this is the point where you enter the living desert, which used to be called the painted desert, but now they're referring to it 
as the living desert in homage to the 1953 uh, film, The Living Desert. In addition to, you know, the things we talked about before, they added a bunch of animals. And mm -hmm. most yeah. of the scenes were scenes that actually happened in the film, yeah. The Living Desert. So what animals do we pass by? What do we see in the living desert? After you come under the Natural Arch Bridge, you're in the desert, and you know some of the first things that you're going to see is this is what you think of when you're in the desert. You see snakes that were on little rocks, really close to the to the train cars. You could see them, and they looked like they could just almost reach out and grab at you. They were so close, right. and they yeah. shook their tails and made rattlesnake noises. And there was also like a desert pond with some antelope that were, uh, you know, positioned to look like they were, you know, drinking from the pond and things like that. And um, then kind of as you came around the bend, you would be entering, um, you'd see some other animals like um, pinnacles and cougars and things like that as you enter into the uh, cactus forest, which they had previously. And they kind of enhanced this cactus forest a little bit. Yeah, they added more cactus to the cactus forest. And uh, so the big scene. So you saw all these little vignettes. There were some vultures in a tree, mm -hmm. or eagles, I should There were eagles in a tree, and different animals just scattered everywhere. But the big scene in this part was this bobcat scene, which was straight yeah. from the living desert. This is a scene is. that yeah. happens in that film. And. Uh, there's uh, wild pigs or boars that are trying to attack a bobcat. And so he climbs up a giant cactus and he's stuck up on this cactus with a whole herd of wild boars surrounding him. That whole scene is replicated here. They have all the wild boars and the bobcat up on the big cactus and everything. <laughs> So that is a really impressive scene that they replicate. And that's probably these, you know, the posters have that scene. When you see a poster of, of the living desert, you always see that scene on the mm -hmm. poster. That's sort of the iconic scene from that movie. So they wanted to replicate that for sure as part of this. So after you um, pass that, you go by again the same things that have always been there. The Devil's Paint Pots and Old Unfaithful Geyser. But then you pass by a set of dinosaur bones that are sort of lying on the ground. And uh, it's interesting because those were actually reused for Big Thunder Mountain. And they were uh, worked into the rock work as you uh, come to the end of the... Uh, attraction and you splash down in a little lake you're surrounded by the rib cage and the big head of that dinosaur it's the exact same dinosaur bones mm -hmm. that were used for but originally they just sort of lied on the ground and they were just sort of they look like 
it had been there for centuries, just drying out. Yeah. You do go through Balancing Rock Canyon again. That was still the same. Right. Balancing Rock Canyon was still there. And, and that's the area where they had coyotes. You could hear the coyotes. Yeah. And this now they the had actual... And stuff. Yeah. And now they had actual ones that moved. <laughs> and those were recycled for Big Thunder Mountain. They kept those. And they're still located in Big Thunder Mountain. When you go down into that little canyon area, you see them up on the ledges. Those mm -hmm. are the same coyotes that were originally from. And I think those, there's only a few animals that were spared and those, those were the main ones that still remain to this day. Most of them were, were um, discarded when they got rid of the attraction. And one other thing that's interesting, and, uh, we saw an interview with Alice Davis where she talked about this. Uh, originally, they used live animal skins to cover mm -hmm. the different audio animatronics. But there were a few problems with this. One problem is Walt one day walked into a freezer in the Imagineering department and saw a carcass and was horrified. And he said, we don't need to be using live animals for this. But another problem, a more practical issue, was the fact that birds would come along and pick at the furs to make their yeah. nests and, and the sun damage. And so they started using artificial fur after a while, which is a good thing. Then you pass by a bunch of mountain lions. And one of them was actually standing right above the cave as you enter the Rainbow Caverns. So he was like, looked like he could jump down on you. So the, the narrator would sort of warn you to be careful because that big bobcat might come, you know, right into the, right into the, the, the car with you. <laughs> So now we're entering the Rainbow Caverns. Rainbow Caverns had several different water features with signs everywhere naming all of the different falls that you would see as you passed through. And they're sort of fun, so we wrote them all down. Ruthie, why don't you share those with everybody? So the first one that you would kind of encounter as you enter into, they called it kind of like Rainbow Mountain, which is where the caverns were under Rainbow Mountain, Rainbow Caverns. And the first one you would encounter is uh, Bridal Veil Falls. And this was kind of like a, a thin, at a, like a thin kind of a um, fall that kind of opened up at the end. So that's why they kind of called it Bridal Veil because it kind of looked like how it would start at the top thin and then open up very big and wide at the bottom. 
and this is also where the uh, staircase falls was and this was like one of the main attractions one of the main falls in Ray Rainbow Cavern because it was very um, large and also really colorful here and so they had the water kind of going down a, a staircase well, a set of rocks a set of rocks that form yeah a rock staircase not an actual yeah. staircase but yeah and they would use the lighting and the colors and things like that to really just brighten it up so this was one, like one of the main things that you first saw when you went into the caverns and then the other thing about rainbow caverns is that it had um falls on both sides so there was stuff to see on all around you you know it wasn't just like this kind of a situation where it would just be on you know on the left hand side so um bridal veil falls was kind of on the right and then the staircase falls was on the left and then you would kind of encounter different types of falls the way that they made them look differently and then also use different colors to kind of highlight different views and things like that so the next one on the left hand side is dance of the seven sisters that was another fall so i guess it kind of looked a little bit like women dancing the way that they positioned the water and then across from that on your left hand side is a falls that they called silver thread among the gold so i think this is again one that they played with different colors and things like that to kind of um make it look gold and silver and then after uh, dance of the seven sisters there's the red devil falls and i guess this had a shape of a devil looked kind of made they made it look kind of like that and then after that there was witch's cauldron and then angel falls and at the end is the rainbow falls so this this particular um fall was kind of like striped and each fall had um represented like a di different color of the rainbow so it was really colorful and pretty and and that's kind of how they ended the caverns and then you came back out again back to rainbow ridge and uh one thing is that not right away but after a few years of it being nature's wonderland they decided to get rid of the live narration, and they asked Dal McKinnon uh, to record a recorded narration. And from that point on, you would hear a recorded narration as you went through the attraction. And I think it was around 1966 or so that they started doing that, because they had just sort of come up with the whole idea of recorded narration on attractions during the 1964 World's Fair with the Magic Skyway. That sort of was the first attraction to really have a onboard narrative, and they started implementing that into a lot of other attractions in Disneyland thereafter, and this being one of them. Howdy, folks. Welcome to the little mining town of Rainbow Ridge, the gateway to nature's wonderland. As we head for the wilderness, a couple of suggestions. Please stay seated at all times and keep your hands and arms inside the train. The animals get mighty hungry. And uh, no smoking, please, because we don't want to start a forest fire. Now, beyond these hills lies nature's wonderland. You're apt to see a whole lot of wildlife, so keep a real sharp hunter's eye. As we come out of this first tunnel, we'll be entering Beaver Valley. 
Looks like the beavers are building another dam. Yes, sir. And they're really busy as a... But they're busy as a beaver. Them little marmots over the tunnel must be a whistling to all you pretty gals. I can't say I blame them. If you've never gone beneath a waterfall before, then get set. We're coming up on Big Thunder, the biggest falls in all these here parts. Don't have to worry, though, unless the wind changes. Them other two falls, they call the twin sisters. I reckon that's because they're always babbling. <laughs> We're coming into bear country now, folks. And while we're crossing the old trestle, you gotta sit real still. We tell them how long she's gonna last. You know, bears are one of the most playful animals there is. Lazy, too. All they want to do is lay around and scratch and fish and swim. That is, when they ain't sleeping. You know, nature's wonderland is awful pretty. Sometimes she can be a mighty rugged place to live. Out here in the wilderness, the struggle for survival leaves only the strong and sometimes the lucky. See, look on that bank across Bear Creek there. There's a real struggle for survival. Two stags are battling for them cow elk. Maybe you folks can tell me, though. Does getting two women folk mean you're the winner or the loser? Never could figure that out. As we pass through old Natural Arch Bridge, you can see the great living desert down below. You know, the desert's a dry place and full of some pretty mean varmints. Gotta be careful of sidewinders, wild pigs, and even mountain lions. But the desert's got her beauty, too. Yellow streaks are running through them sandstone cliffs are called coconino. Red, we call them supai. Now ahead of us, folks, is a giant saguaro cactus forest. Desert heat sometimes gets to you and makes these here cactus take on strange shapes like animals. And sometimes even people. Aha! Look down there on your left. Them wild pigs is caught up with old Mr. Bobcat. He's in kind of a sticky situation. Say, uh, ever hear of the Devil's Paint Pots? Real mystery of the desert. Bubbling pots of mud in all kinds of colors. This is geyser country, too. Oh, oh there she blows. I'm sure glad you all brought your raincoats. But look out now. We never know when she's going to go off. That's why we call her Old Unfaithful. Look out now! <laughs> you folks in them last cars be ready. She's a-threatening again. You know, I hear tell a long time ago, dinosaurs ruled this area. Of course, what we find now is cactus and snakes and coyotes. And sometimes the sun-bleached bones of an ancient animal. There's the voice of the desert, a coyote. size and weight. You know, last trip, a mountain lion showed up right over that tunnel. There's one now. See, you better all be real quiet. 
Now we're going deep into the earth to view the dazzling rainbow caverns. You see giant stalagmites, stalactites, and colorful falls on every side. Say, if you look real careful, you see Geyser Grotto and even the witch's cauldron. See, we're coming back to Rainbow Ridge again. I hope you all enjoyed your trip into nature's wonderland. Uh, please stay in your seats till I get the train stop, will you? And then just lift up the jump seat in the middle and the door will come right open. Now, to find the exit, folks, just head right for the front of the train. And if you got a mountain lion sitting next to you, don't feed him. Just tell him to hop out and hightail it back to his own stomping ground. <laughs> well, thanks for riding along, and come on back again when you're out these here frontier parts, will you? So long. And Al McKinnon was sort of, uh, well, one thing is he provided, outside of Disney, is he was the voice of Gumby and Pokey from the, you know, the, the claymation series. But also, he did a lot of other animation voices for various Disney films. In fact, he was involved in the film we just talked about in our previous episode, Lady and the Tramp, and he invented the famous hyena laugh that you hear in uh, It's a Small World. So that was Dallas McKinnon. He invented the hyena laugh for the zoo sequence for Lady and the Tramp originally. And so, when Nature's Wonderland first opened, it was a e-ticket attraction. But over the years, more and more exciting things had been added to the park. And the maintenance was sort of not as... Uh, the upkeep hadn't been what it should have been. And some of the animals were starting to look, look a little raggedy towards the end. 
and uh, Mark Davis was asked to come up with some ideas on how to, you know, sort of spruce up and make the attraction more exciting and, and add some humor. And he drew a series of really wonderful concept illustrations of all sorts of different scenes that could have been added to the attraction to give it some more humor. I think there was a scene with a skunk sort of getting involved in some mischief and all sorts of different fun scenes, but none of it ever happened. Another idea to spruce up the area was to include an attraction that he, Mark Davis had originally developed for Walt Disney World's Frontierland, which was called the um, uh, Western River Expedition. So they thought about actually including that attraction that was never created in Florida either as uh, in Disneyland, but that never happened either. So instead, they decided to go in a whole different direction and uh, they were going to completely redo the whole area in two phases. And unfortunately, only phase one ever was completed. And this was all the uh, doings of Disney Imagineer Tony Baxter. And he created a sort of much abridged version of what was once Nature's Wonderland into a thrill attraction with a footprint that was much smaller than the original opening up a whole bunch of extra space behind the attraction to add something else. And that's what never happened, was the something else. And But Big Thunder Mountain opened in 1979. The original train, uh, Nature's Wonderland, closed in January of 1977. And... Uh, so in 1979, we had Big Thunder Mountain, and there are a few things from the original. We mentioned the coyotes. Another thing that's still there are several of the structures, not all of them, but several of the structures from Rainbow Ridge are still located at the queue area to Big Thunder Mountain. And uh, it was sort of renamed... Big Thunder Ridge instead of Rainbow Ridge, and they sort of came up with a whole legend behind it, how it was uh, haunted, and they still have, when you pass by and you're in the queue area, they still play little scenes out from the windows. There's a bar scene and a barbershop scene and all the different things you can hear from the windows. If you listen very carefully and closely, usually it's so loud you, you miss it. And there's music playing, and unless you're really paying attention. And you might hear a very short five seconds of it at the end of Big Thunder Mountain when the trains pass by. But for the most part, uh, you know, that part of what was once Rainbow Caverns is still there. And then uh, when... When they built Big Thunder Mountain, they were able to build a whole trail behind it leading into Fantasyland. Before that, that whole area was a dead end. There was no way to get to the other side of the park without going back out into the hub. And it was sort of an issue over the years. So one thing they definitely planned for when they built Big Thunder Mountain is we're finally going to make it so that you can get over to the 
east side of the park without having to go back out into the hub. So they built a whole trail area, it's called it Big Thunder Trail, and on the opposite side of Big Thunder Mountain Railroad, you can still see from Big Thunder Trail the big lake that was once part of Bear Country. And some of the flying fish are still in there and they still jump around and you can see the flying fish that at one point were supposed to be caught by the bears. The fish are still there jumping around. The trestle bridge was removed but you can see the cave that the trestle bridge once came out of is still there. Mm -hmm. the, the cave and it looks like the mine shaft now. And uh, for many years, up until 1998, they still had the Rainbow uh, Big Thunder Falls and the yeah, Twin the Sister Cascade Falls. Peak. Right, yeah. that was still there. And uh, they put one of the original mine trains uh, right on, that the train tracks were still there and they made it look like there was an accident and a big boulder had fallen on top of the train. And they had after not in the originally but after a while they actually had little prairie dogs popping up and out of the little train cars they added that to it after a while so they had another call back to the prairie dogs from the original nature's wonderland but they mm -hmm. removed the the cascade peak in 98 because it was starting to they had water going over it and it was man-made and it was starting to deteriorate and it wasn't structurally sound anymore. So rather than trying to fix it, they just got rid of it. And I always was upset when it, because I felt like that was a major loss. Just such mm -hmm. a beautiful part of the Rivers of America that they took out. But anyway, they left the train there without Cascade Peak. The train was still there mm -hmm. for years. And then they finally took that out. I think in, 2000, in 2010, they removed that. And they gave it to um, the, um, the Red Barn. Walt's people, Barn, yeah. Walt's Barn. Mm -hmm. And they've had it for years, and they, um, I think it's nearing its completion. They've been restoring it. It's taking them a long time because it takes a lot of money, and they, you know, they have limited funds because they're a nonprofit organization. But it, they've been working on it, and they're just about finished restoring it now. And you'll probably be able to ride it around in the um, vicinity. You'll be able mm -hmm. to once again ride one of the original mine cars at uh, Griffith Park. So um, another thing um, that uh, is interesting is that when they added It's a Small World, they moved the train tracks. Originally, the train at the northern part of Disneyland when you turned past the Indian village you would go straight across till you got to Tomorrowland and then you made another turn well in in the mid 60s they made it so that it sort of went all the way up north to a peak and then it turned and and went back down again so they added a whole they built sort of a little, instead of it being a triangle, they turned it into a diamond shape. Mm -hmm. Because now it had a, a point instead of a line going straight across. They did that 
for It's a Small World, to fit in It's a Small World. But in doing that, they also left a huge amount of space where they could put something else. So the original plan was when you were going down Big Thunder Trail, you would enter into a brand new land to be called Discovery Bay, which was also designed by Tony Baxter and never built. And then in 1986, instead, they put in Big Thunder Ranch. And then, of course, that was closed <laughs> a few years Recently, ago. Recently, yeah. <laughs> and, and now that's where Star Wars Galaxy's Edge is located. So mm -hmm. they never put in that uh, Discovery Bay, but they did put in Discovery Land in Disneyland Paris. And they also have a lot of the elements that were meant for Discovery Bay. They were built as part of the um, uh, Tokyo Disney Sea. So, a lot of the things that were planned for that did end up happening, but not in Disneyland itself. So there's also, uh, and I think it's you can see it also at Walt's Barn at Griffith Park, this uh, person has been building this elaborate model for years of the mm -hmm. complete layout of Nature's Wonderland. It has Cascade Peak and it goes inside Rainbow Caverns and it's the whole thing built in miniature. And the whole process was documented on YouTube. You can go back and look at all the videos of him when he was designing it. It's got animation in it it's got special lighting it's got nighttime lighting and he's actually put a little small camera on the train so you can see what it looks like point of view and it goes inside the rainbow caverns and you can see what it looks like inside the cavern and it's really neat the whole rainbow town rainbow ridge he built it's the whole thing and you can go look. I think it's done now. I mean, it's, it took him years, but he finally did finish it. And you can see it at Walt's Barn. One other thing. Recently, just a couple years ago, the popular Mickey shorts that have been on YouTube for years now, the new uh, attraction at Walt Disney World is based on it. The um, Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway. Um, I think this short may have been one of the inspirations behind Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway because there's a short called Nature's Wonderland, which is actually an homage to Nature's Wonderland. And there's a whole scene where you see the original Rainbow Caverns. After mm -hmm. a big explosion, it uh, opens up the way to the long-forgotten original Rainbow Caverns. And it's all really cute and well done. Mickey short. Yeah, Mick is using the map that was originally drawn up for the uh, Nature's Wonderland right. and as an inspiration during this short, so it's really cute. If you right. haven't seen it, you should go watch it. It's on, it's on Disney Plus. And it's on it, YouTube. It's on, too. yeah. Mm -hmm. Watch it anywhere for free. So, do you have any final thoughts about Nature's Wonderland, Ruthie? Um, yeah, it's kind of a couple of things that we didn't mention is um, if you do want to see, it's mostly the outside part of it, but there are some scenes that they um, filmed at Nature's Wonderland for the film 40 Pounds of Trouble with Tony Curtis. 
He's right. actually running through like the living desert area and like the geysers and stuff like that. So um, you can see some of it in in color um, if you want to um, check that out. Of course, we've mentioned that movie multiple times because they film a lot of that movie in different areas in Disneyland. So it's just kind of like a good uh, snapshot for uh, what Disneyland looked like in the 60s. And so so there is that. And then um, before they actually took out um, Big Thunder Ranch and stuff like that, there was still some more remnants there in that some area of work. the attraction. Yeah. yeah, some of the buttes. And, and they still had, there was, during the attraction when you were on it, there was another tunnel that you would see. Now, you wouldn't actually go through it. It was technically a, a maintenance tunnel, but it looked like a cave, like a rock cave. And they still had the entrance to that there. They had covered it up a little bit, but it was still there. So yeah. um, it's pretty interesting that they kept they keep these little homages, kind of like these secret homages in the park to these previous attractions. Um, now, of course, that's gone now because that's where Galaxy's Edge is now, which we mentioned. But um, it's just kind of... Um, I really like that how they have like these little footprints there that you can see and be like oh i remember that this is where this other attraction used to be so just wanted to mention that real quick but um this was it was really fun doing the research for this attraction because this is an attraction that i never got to experience because it closed in 1977 just a few years after i was born and i don't believe my parents took me to disneyland at the first couple of years of my life and if they did and they took me on this ride, I don't remember it. So <laughs> um, so this has always kind of been an attraction that, like one of those uh, bucket list things, like, oh, if I could go back in time and, and experience any attraction, for me, this is the attraction that I would experience because this is the one that I had, haven't experienced. I've experienced other ones that are now gone, like uh, America Sings and you know, um, adventures through inner space. I was able to go on those, but this is one that I never was able to experience. So, um, you know, I always kind of have that uh, nostalgia for this attraction. It just seems like something that, um, you know, just just such an ultimate kind of a Disney attraction, you know, incorporates Walt's love of nature and trains and um, a little bit of fantasy there at the end with Rainbow Caverns and and just kind of a, a love of his uh, American West, um, all incorporated into this attraction. So, you know, I just really wish I would have been able to experience it. So that's kind of how I feel about this. And, you know, I really enjoyed doing this episode because it, it got um, gave me a chance to really dig deep into it, all of this. Well, one thing that I... Um forgot to mention before too is that uh, there was a 1961 episode of Walt Disney Presents oh yeah one of the last black and white episodes before it became the wonderful world of color too bad they waited I mean too bad they didn't mm -hmm. wait because this I would know. have been better in color but they uh, talked about the opening of Nature's Wonderland, and they took you on a whole ride through of the attraction set to music. And the song was called All Aboard the Mine Train, and it was actually written by the Sherman Brothers. And uh, the um, queue area to Big Thunder Mountain today has a bunch of instrumental, sort of cowboy and western type songs 
and a lot of them come from different Disney films and whatnot. But one of the songs you hear in the queue area is actually All Aboard the Mine Train, which was the song written for Nature's Wonderland. But uh, you can actually, uh, I'll play you uh, that music right now because it's, it's really charming. It's a lot of fun. Board, all aboard, all aboard the mine train. We're leaving right away, heading for the wilderness where the barren coyotes play. Now that waterfall's called Big Thunder, but you won't get wet unless the wind changes. Across the trestle, heading for the mine. If you feel like swimming, jump in the water's fine. And up there, those bears are really happy. Their young uns love to climb. That critter there, that's Itchy Sam. <laughs> He's having himself a time. Hey, look, uh, there's an Elks convention. Howdy, Hootie. Did we wake you up? Traveling on the mine train through nature's wonderland. Well, here comes a stage from Grizzly Gulch. That's where all the gold is panned. And there's the only man-made natural bridge in America. Desert, you can't believe your eyes. Sorry, no hitchhikers. If you told the folks back home, they'd think it's a pack of lies. There's varmints all around us, their appetites are keen. Hey, keep your hands back inside the train now. See what I mean? Those old unfaithful geysers live up to their name, you know. You can't tell when they'll blow their tops. They blow and blow and blow. Yep, there they blow again. Steady, folks. That's no house cat. We're in the land of dancing rocks. Watch them rock and roll. We've had a lot of close ones, but we've never lost a soul. Cause traveling on the mine train is a mighty happy ride. And now we're coming to the mine, let's see the sights inside. So the last thing I want to say about Nature's Wonderland is I probably did go on this, but I don't remember it because I'm only a couple years older than Ruthie, and I know I went to Disneyland as a baby, but I'm too—I was way too young to remember this. I do not remember it at all. Only in in pictures and and uh, people uh, talking about it and and audio different types of audio. I never got to really fully experience it. And it's one of those things that uh, it's a shame that they got rid of it. I mean, everybody loves Big Thunder Mountain, but uh, this was just such a special attraction. I mean, it's just like 
can you really it's it's sophie's choice which one is better big thunder mountain or this <laughs> i mean yeah. they're both terrific attractions and i love the even though i never went on nature's wonderland i i love both of these attractions so it's sort of hard to decide which one is better really but uh one other thing that uh, I always talk about is I feel like a way they could bring this back, maybe not to Disneyland, but they don't have, you know how Animal Kingdom has a whole bunch of different themed areas based on different parts of the world? Well, I feel like they could do an America section yeah. and have animals native to North America and have, instead of uh, mechanical animals, with the different things they know now with how they created Animal Kingdom and the way they're able to make it so the animals are present and viewable by guests, they could make a mine train ride as the way you would see the animals that are native to North America and have a whole second, you know, attraction to take you through the animals. So the North American version of the you know the safari attraction in the Africa mm -hmm. section and have bears and uh, deer and, and uh, uh, mountain lions and all sorts of animals native to North America and, and that would be a interesting way of bringing back the whole concept of the nature's wonderland uh, train attraction in Animal Kingdom at Walt Disney World. So if any uh, Imagineers are listening, feel free to take my idea and run with it. And please do this. <laughs> <laughs> so that was episode 126 of the Jiminy Crickets podcast. Ruthie, where can everybody find Jiminy Crickets on the web? You can listen to all of our past shows, including audio versions of Dateline Jiminy Crickets, on our website, jcricketpodcast.blogspot.com. You can also listen to us on iTunes under the name Jiminy Crickets. That's with an exclamation point, and be sure to leave us a five-star review. On our YouTube channel, we share updates to the Disney Crisp website, including the Disneyland Magical Audio Tour, as well as past episodes of the Jiminy Crickets podcast and Dateline Jiminy Crickets. You can find our channel if you search for DisneyChris.com. And remember, .com is spelled out D-O-T-C-O-M. And don't forget to subscribe and click on the notification bell. You can also join in the conversation over on our Facebook page, Jiminy Crickets Podcast, where you can not only interact with Chris and me and all the fellow cricketeers, but you can also stay up to date on all the latest details of our many worldwide web endeavors. In addition to all the normal places you have always found our podcast, you can now also find us over at the Roarbots, a unique website celebrating all aspects of geek culture, including Disney fandom. Here we share all of our new episodes twice monthly, as well as special best of episodes from our extensive back catalog of shows. We are proud to be a part of this motley crew of pop culture superfans, so be sure to check out this amazing website at www.theroarbots.com. If you would like to contact the show with your comments or questions, our email address is DisneyChrisDOTCOM at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. And we are now on Instagram. Our official Instagram account is at DisneyChris underscore JC underscore podcast. There are hundreds of colorful vintage Disney images on our page. 
and we are continually adding more fun Disney things to see. This is also a great place to get updates to our podcast and the Disney Chris website. You can find me on Twitter at DisneyChris73. On Facebook, Ruthie can be found under the name Ruthie Brown, and I can be found under the name Chris Linden. That's L-Y-N-D-O-N, as in Lyndon Johnson. My website is DisneyChris.com, home to the Disney Song of the Day and the Disneyland Magical Audio Tour, where you'll find over 1,900 audio tracks from the happiest place on Earth. We would also like to give special thanks to those who help us spread our magic with their generous support. You can help support Dateline Jiminy Crickets, the Jiminy Crickets podcast, and the Disney Chris website by becoming a Patreon subscriber. By joining our illustrious roster of supporters, you'll receive exclusive rewards every month, including audio content, Disney video commentaries, and an exclusive Patreon subscribers-only podcast called Down the Rabbit Hole. Additionally, your name will be featured on screen during the closing credits of each Dateline Jiminy Crickets podcast. Be sure to check out our new donation levels and special rewards at www.patreon.com slash disneychris. You can also make a one-time only donation or recurring donation via PayPal. Recurring PayPal donators qualify for the same rewards as our Patreon subscribers. You'll find links to all these donation options at disneychris.com slash donate.html. Ruthie, do you have any final words today? I do. I hope you enjoyed our trip through the little mining town of Rainbow Ridge and through Nature's Wonderland. Thanks for listening. And always let your conscience be your guide. Your heart is in your dream